Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And today we're talking about negative gearing and blue chip investing. Well, more specifically, I had a chat with the flamingo, Jack Henderson from Henderson, Henderson Advocacy. Now, Henderson, uh, Jack Henderson's a great guy. Um, he has built a sizable property portfolio buying basically blue chip apartments, right? So fairly diametrically opposed strategy to what we normally talk about on this show, which is cash flow positive property properties in high growth areas with value add potential, the holy trinity. Jack's strategy is kind of the opposite of that. It's basically buy in blue chip suburbs, um, probably apartments, maybe houses. He's, we talk about that in the episode as well. And we kind of talk about the financial mechanics of how this works and who it's for and you know how where this can kind of fit within a portfolio. And you know the reality is that all kinds of strategies will work for all kinds of people at different points in their life and for certain different reasons. Now, the, if you can understand where all this sits within the ecosystem, then there's a way that you can use this to your advantage as well. So you may very well find that at some point in your journey that this could be a part of your total wealth story. And so that's why I thought it'd be really good to unpack that and kind of talk about how this works and you know how it can actually pay you and how to start to think about it as well. So Jack's a great guy. Um, you know, he's he's a good friend and uh, I really appreciate him spending the time on the show. And I really think that you're gonna get a lot out of it too. He's got a cool story and he's done some cool stuff. And it's really great to get a fresh and different perspective on how to think about investing in this space. So if you want help to build out your property strategy, if you want help to do to build a scalable property portfolio and to continue to buy and buy and buy again using cash flow positive properties in high growth areas, then of course reach out. Just, uh, just head to theinvestorlab.com.au, hit the contact us section and check that out there. But without any further ado, let's get stuck right on into it. And as ever, I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me today is the Mr. Flamingo himself, Jack Henderson from Henderson Advocacy, the one and only number one buyer's agent for the eastern suburbs of Sydney. He's a legend in the game and he's a character as well. Jack, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. That's, a, that's quite a rap sheet that you made up there. <laughs> well, mate, I want to. I want you to. I want you to feel good. I thought if I can, I thought if I could make you, you know, give you a bit of a pump up at the start, you know, it'll help you ease into the episode pretty well. But, mate, we're we're on different ends of the spectrum. Obviously, we we know each other um, relatively well. We've been swimming. I've I've been with you basically almost naked in the water, so we're pretty close in that sense. Um, yeah. But we're operating on two very different sides of the whole like property sphere. You know, obviously, what we do as a strategy is around. You know, cash flow positive properties in in growth areas, and we've kind of got a, got a bit of a bit of a different kind of thing going on. But that does, but there's more than one way to skin a cat, which is why I wanted to get you on the show, and I wanted to talk to you about what you do specifically. I want to talk to you about more blue chip type investing and all of that kind of stuff. But for those of you, for those of the listeners who haven't been half naked in the water with you, what do you do? Like, tell us a little bit about yourself, and tell us a little bit about what where how what you get up to. Swim should be a regular thing, if you ask me. So we have to start scheduling that <laughs> into the diary. Get, we have to get that back up to speed. Hundred <laughs> um, percent. So look, uh, essentially, uh, my thirty-second story is: I was uh, expelled from two high schools, dropped out, sort of, you know, backed myself into a corner. When I went into the construction and the mining industry, um, did that for sort of six to seven years, from sort of fifteen to twenty-two. In the meantime, while doing that, I started building a portfolio that sort of sits just below five million at the moment. With with any luck and a good run in the Sydney property market, it'll be over five by the end of the year. 
Um, and mate, sort of while I was doing that, you know, doing these sort of things, podcasts, uh, magazines, all that stuff, because I was a young investor. So, you know, people sort of resonated with other young people sort of resonated with me and, um, you know, started to build a little bit of a brand. And then that was sort of like a natural progression into to doing what I do now, right? Because I thought, well, people ask me what I'm doing. They're inspired by it. So why not make a career out of it and get out of the fluoros and into a uh, Anderson Advocacy t-shirt, which is uh, what's brought us to be sitting here today, mate. Awesome. Good stuff. Awesome. Okay. So you started Henderson Advocacy, which is obviously a buyer's agency service. And um, and you're focusing more specifically around the eastern suburbs of Sydney and, and Newcastle as well, right? Because that's where you're from, right? Yeah. So no, actually originally from Sydney, but we've got an office in Newcastle and an office down here in Sydney. So we sort of, we sort of specialize in Sydney to Newcastle and everywhere in between. Okay. Awesome. So, mate, I'm interested to understand around the strategy because obviously you've got a pretty decent portfolio uh, and obviously you got that at a pretty, you, you started building that at a pretty young age. So you've done very well, uh, I think by any measure um, and that's awesome. But I'm curious around what the actual strategy is around the types of properties not that you've bought. We can talk about it not necessarily like, hey, your specific portfolio. I want to talk about it more as, a, as the idea because you've bought mostly blue chip negatively geared properties, right? Yeah, yeah. So all of my portfolio would be would be classified as would be yeah, blue chip, I would say. Okay. And what's the what's the thinking around that? What's the strategy behind why like why did you choose that pathway? There's obviously heaps of different ways you can invest your money, right? There's there's commercial, there's you know what we do, which is cash flow positive residential, there's all kinds of other stuff. Specifically what led you down that pathway and and yeah, what what led you down that pathway? And then talk to talk to us a little bit about why why you think it's a way to go so look i think i think the biggest thing or the biggest um i guess driver behind that was my mentor right so i had a mentor in chris gray chris gray is you know someone who's probably one of the most well-known property spectators and investors in that property realm that we work in um and he was my mentor so he was very blue chip um you know eastern suburbs two-bedroom apartments 200 meters from the beach um, and that's what sort of built his wealth so that was my biggest influence when i moved into investing was well that's what he does so you know that that's where where i'm going to head um so at the very early stage i would say it was probably not an uneducated move but that was it was if it was an influential move right so you probably got a lot of clients and a lot of young people that look up to you and the reason they probably go down your strategy is because they want to be like you, right? Yeah. And that was the same with me and Chris Gray. So Chris was doing it. He drove the Lamborghini. He had the boats and all the rest of it. And I was like, well, fuck, this seems all right. If I buy a couple of properties and get a Lamborghini, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> so, yeah, so, nice. Yeah, I did that, mate. And then, look, as I got more and more educated around it and, and it started to become, I guess, less of a passion and more of a, I don't know what the word you'd call it is, but it, it became more of my life and I started dedicating more of my life to it. It, it, it started to... I guess, resonate more with me and started to make a lot more sense than just listening to some random pommy who uh, had a Lamborghini, right? So I think the biggest thing with, with Blue Chip is, like you said, it's definitely not for everyone out there. Like if you've got a low income, cash flow is very important to you and you can't necessarily afford the outgoings on a monthly basis, even though interest rates are very low at the moment and even the most negatively geared property is still, you know, almost neutral, then it's probably not the strategy for you, nor is it, it's not the strategy for you if you don't necessarily have the ability to keep increasing your income over time through a business or through, you know, being a high paid employee, because you're going to be limited on how much the bank's going to borrow or going to lend to you, right? Um, but I guess my philosophy, got, my, my reasoning behind it was 
I want to be around people who control their own incomes because when people control their own incomes, they can then borrow more money from the bank, which then allows them to spend more money on property. Mm. Um, and, and I guess the, the, my thinking behind that is we're in the probably the, the lowest income growth society in history, right? Income growth is at the lowest it's ever been, almost the yep. lowest it's ever been, which means uh, uh, the way I think about it is if you're buying in blue and white collar working areas, sure, you're going to get growth in the short term. Um, you know, if the average income in that area household income, say 120 grand a year, their income's not very growing, not growing at a rapid pace. Then once they hit their cap on how much they can borrow, where does the growth come from? Because you want growth to be fueled by owner occupiers, not by investors coming from out of the area. Because investors coming from out of the area, they're, they're dictated by how easy it is to leverage and grab money. And if it's hard to get money, like it was in the Royal Commission times, you know, two years ago, then that investor growth dries up and, and it's yeah. unsustainable. So that that's sort of my thinking behind blue chip. Yeah. Okay. Intre- that's that's pretty interesting. So you touched on a couple of things there. So so really, this is. It's a strategy for people who can control their income. So either people that are that are in a position where they where they where they're in a very you know in a good paying job, but it's also a lot of lot of room for growth. So you know it could be someone who's at a, in a middle middle management level now, but they've got lots of upwards uh, upwards potential within the organisation they're in, or it could be a business owner, someone who can really manufacture that cash flow in a way that kind of suits them. But this is probably not for for anyone who has got a limitation on their on their borrowing capacity because they're going to tap themselves out pretty quickly. Is that right? Yeah, look, I would say that. I mean, regardless, even if your property's positively cash flowed, you know, I, I did a, a study with a mortgage broker a little while ago and it was like, how positive cash flow does your property have to be to actually have it not impact your serviceability? Yeah. And it was like eight and a half to nine percent. So trying to find a property with eight and a half to nine percent is almost impossible anyway. So I mean, I don't know, mate. You should see some of the case studies off. we've got, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> well there you go. So yeah. It's like, you know, it, it, it's, it's still going to impact your servicing. Yeah. Um, but if you've got a budget of 400 grand and, you know, you, <laughs> that's sort of what you're limited to spending, then 400 grand is not really going to get you much in the areas that I buy in. So, yeah. you know, I, I probably think it's probably best to go and buy something in an area that's maybe not as good, but get the best quality property you possibly can in that area. So, yeah. and that's the thing, like, just because I buy blue chip, you know, whether it be the eastern suburbs or whether it be Newcastle or whether it be, you know, there's many other blue chip locations around Australia. If you've got a limited budget to buy in those areas, it's still probably not best to buy in those areas because sure, location does 80% of the heavy lifting, but we want to buy properties that outperform the market, not just move with the market, right? Yeah, I was, so, going, to, I was going to ask you about that, like within the areas, within the areas that you buy. And look, you know, just to keep it simple, we'll talk about, say, Eastern Suburbs of Sydney, Newcastle, that kind of stuff to keep it relative, right? But but within those areas, is I was going to say, is it really about location, location, location? It's going to be oh, ocean views near the beach or something like that, or can it sort of be pretty much anywhere in that? area or how specific does a location need to be and you kind of touched on that then you don't want to buy a shit property in a good area do you no well i mean look it's still it's still going to perform quite well especially in upward swing markets like we're in right now but i i think it definitely comes down and it's probably the same as you just buying in an area and buying any property yeah it doesn't mean a great deal it's about the one percentage right so if you're buying an apartment in the eastern suburbs of sydney for example you know location's huge being in bellevue hill or being in bondi beach two completely separate marketplaces you know then then when you're in bondi beach it's like you know being in a a dark two better with no parking on bondi road it's probably not going to perform as well as a two better with parking and outdoor space on francis street north facing with beach views like that matters and 
you know, in markets like we're in right now, everything sells. So it doesn't matter if you're in the two bedroom, dark, dingy place where you've got the north facing beautiful beach view apartment, they both going to sell very well in a, in a, in a market like we're in right now, because there's, there's just no, no stock and a lot of buyers. Um, but what I look for is what sells in shit markets. You know, what what's the property that sells regardless of the marketplace we're in? And that's the property that I want to buy. Because if it sells well in a shit market, it's going to do very well in a good marketplace. Got it. So what's the exit strategy? Because right, what we've established here is basically we're buying expensive properties in highly desirable areas. Uh, you know, the reality is it's going to be costing you a lot of money to hold. So you need to be able to afford it. Okay. But, so what's the exit strategy? Yeah, look, I wouldn't necessarily say it's going to cost you a lot to hold. Like, you know, uh, if you're pro- like, for example, I've got, say, five million bucks in property. Okay. Yep. And let's just say I have five million in debt too to make it relative terms. Yep. Um, if, if, that's, if, if that's yielding, say, 3% net. Yeah. 3% net, so 3% gross. So we're hanging, let, let, let's clarify your definition of net and, and stuff like that because what you're you're saying uh, net, but we've got the cost of we've got the cost of um, of debt, right? So three percent gross, but then we got yeah, so the cost, I'm saying three percent net yield, not net net lose. So if we're saying you got a three percent net yield, which is minus all your expenses, not minus your, your interest, obviously, but three percent net yield, so minus your strata, minus your what, it's, not really net. it's not really net then is it it's only like it's only minus some of the expenses because cost of debt is pretty significant yeah but if you had no if you had no debt that would be your net yield so let's just say it's five million dollar portfolio you've got three yep. percent net yield which is minus all your expenses okay. whatever Exclu- your excluding debt, debt excluding excluding debt okay yep that's right and then my next point was going to be let's just say you've got five million in debt as well so then you've got okay. five million in debt at two percent right thereabouts in, in, in interest rate environment. So you're probably negative by about 1% now, thereabouts. So if you're negative by 1, 1.5%, then, and you've got 5 million in property, it's probably going to cost you between, say, 50 and 75,000 a year. So it's, not that, it's, it's not that negative in reality if you're holding $5 million worth of property that's performing at you know, 7 to 10% a year. How realistic are those numbers? Because like a lot of people are still getting interest rates that are even though that like you know the official cash rate has dropped so low, a lot of people are still getting interest rates that are closer to three percent. Oh, my, I know what my numbers are, and my numbers definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, no, I'm uh, curious. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I'm. 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 I'm just curious because I'm like I. I. I'm not trying to like. I'm not trying to to sh- shoot anything down. I'm just. I'm just trying to clarify because I'm genuinely interested in it because obviously there, there's a the, the growth story that can happen. You know, I live in Bondi, right? And I see that I see the value of properties get skyrocketing and all of that kind of stuff. It's desirable. You know, I ultimately. I when and when it comes time that I want to go and buy something, I'm going to be talking to you, Jack, and going, Jack, let's go go find the house. Like I wouldn't even do it myself. I'd be reaching out to you because you'd be the guy that I trust to know the area around here and have the better connections than I would. Now, I can see the value in it. What I'm trying to understand is what how does what how does the mechanics really stack up and where does it fit in with someone's portfolio? Well, if you're buying a million dollar apartment right now, let's just say a mil one point one thereabouts, you're probably getting around probably seven hundred bucks a week for it, seven fifty, depending on where it is. Yep. So if you do the yield on that, that's about three and a half ish percent. Yep. Thereabouts. Yep. So that that's that's your yield. You've got whatever expenses you have, your strata, your yep. water, your little bit of maintenance that you have on it. Um so and depending on who you are, it's gonna depend on your lending position, right? If you're a really high risk person who's you know leveraging to the hill, then you have to go with a second tier lender, your rates probably gonna be, be higher yep. than what they are as if you've got a really high income and you're a you know conservative and you're lending yep. with CBA, but like for example, I'm all my all my debts with CBA, um, 
and I think my rates are two-ish. I wouldn't know what the exact number are, but yeah, yeah. thereabouts, you know, two, two percent, two point two, or something like that, which is still closer to two than it is for three. But I'm sure, like, for example, I was with Liberty um, when I, I had to refinance to buy another property, and CBA wouldn't give me the money, so then I had to go with Liberty, which is essentially a second-tier lender. Mm. When rates were probably like. It was probably like two or three years ago now. So that was rates would have been there about 3%, 3.2. And my rates were closer to five. But I was like, I'd rather pay an extra 2% and hold another $1.5 million of property than save on you know, the 2% and not maximize. And, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah I, I, I don't think that... I think people should be chasing the outcome, not the cost of debt. Like if someone's going exactly. to, chase, they should be, they just should be focused on buying the property. They're going to have a much higher net benefit than if they were to chase the chase the interest rates. So just going back to it, what's the exit strategy? Is the is the goal basically like build up this portfolio, this high growth portfolio, and then start to sell stuff stuff down at the end? Like what's the what's the like what's the goal? Like if you keep stacking them up, what do you, what ends what ends up happening? Yeah, so I think it's different for everyone. If we're talking about me personally. Yeah. Um, I plan to have a, a business all through my life that I yep. can keep controlling my own income and keep earning more money. So um, at this stage, I don't really have an exit strategy. I'll, I'll probably never sell. Um, I'll probably get to a point in my life where I start paying some debt down and then either start living off that passively or I'll, I'll have a strategy where I just keep refinancing you know, all the way through my life and keep living off equity, um, which yeah. is definitely not the strategy for everyone out there. Like I said, if you don't have a business or you don't have an income that's ever increasing yeah. all the way through your life, you're not going to be able to keep refinancing debt and living off debt. Um, but for me, if I have a business that you know is constantly growing through life, and you know, every five years or every three years, I can refinance up to eighty percent, pull out the debt, put that in an offset yeah. account, and live until I get to a point where either I don't need to do it anymore and I just sell the portfolio off, or I die and pass it on to my kids, or whatever happens there. Like I don't really know, but my strategy through life now is just going to be to keep refinancing, putting debt in an offset account, servicing the that, debt. That, that, that's an, that's live. an interesting one because this is the bit that I'm trying to understand. So so. Um, and this is a bit that a lot of people don't understand. So I think you get it, but a lot of people don't, right? So, so how how do they how do these properties pay you? Because if they're not producing cash flow, how do they pay you? And what you're saying is refinance it. And again, you know, this strategy might not be for everyone, but it's an interesting thing to understand. So the goal. So you, what you're saying is you basically take that refinance it out, put it back in the offset, and then you can slowly use that offset amount as an income whilst the property is also going up in value, and that kind of basically balances itself out. Is that is that I got, got the gist of it? Essentially, yeah. So, you know, for example, we let's just say we see 25 to 30% growth in the city property market over the next two to three years, which I reckon we've already seen 15% in the last fucking three weeks. Um, so you're holding five million bucks worth of property. Hypothetically speaking, it grows by 20%. You made a million bucks in, let's just say, two years, right? Yeah. You're then able, if you have the income to do so, to mm. then go refinance on your portfolio yeah. Take out eight hundred grand of that mill because you can take up up to eighty percent without paying your lender's mortgage insurance. Put that in an offset account. Don't pay any interest on it until you draw down on the debt. They go buy more property or you know enjoy your life on it. But look, I think my, my my thing right now is I probably won't enjoy my life on it. Like I probably won't live off equity. I'll probably just keep reinvesting that or using it as working capital in my business or. You know, as many other, I don't need it as a cash flow situation in my yeah. life. Um, but you know, debt debt's so cheap at the moment. If you can use the use the bank's money at two percent or two and a half percent and reinvest it in your business as working capital and return 
X amount and it's a pretty good use of money. Yeah, totally. I, I agree with that. Again, and again, look, I don't have a problem with this strategy. Like, like I think I understand yeah. I understand that it can fit within an ecosystem of strategies and and all of that kind of stuff. What would happen though if uh, like obviously if we look back to like the nineties or the eighties or whatever and interest rates were like seventeen percent and stuff like that? Yeah, now, I'm not necessarily. I'm not saying that I expect interest rates to start racing back up uphill again. But like, how would this strategy change for you if if interest rates did start to go up? Like, if they went back up to like seven percent, eight percent? Well, look, it probably wouldn't change that much because it's not going to go from two to seven overnight, right? So it's going to be yeah. a, a slow increase. Um, and I guess when that shit starts to happen, you have to rethink things and either start paying debt down or, you know, selling off a property that's maybe doubled in value and then pay off another property. So then you've essentially got your passive income of whatever it is, $1,000 a week or something. Yeah. Um, so that there's, there's, many, there's many different, like you said, there's many different ways to skin a cat. But if we're talking about the, the environment we're in right now, the interest rates we're in right now, um, then that's the, the strategy. But I guess it's good to have a portfolio sitting there. Even if you've refinanced up to 80%, put all that cash in an offset, but you're not drawing down on the debt. If something were to happen and you've got, say, you've got, let's just say we hold, I held 5 million bucks in, in property, that's at 80%. You've got 3 million of real debt. And then mm. say a million dollars sitting in an offset account as cash, which is actually debt, but it's not debt until you use it. Mm. And that portfolio of five million bucks costs, let's just say the interest rates went to five percent, and you've got yep. three million dollars worth of debt. Um, you're talking about, you know, say 150 grand a year in, in interest. Yeah. And you've got 800 grand sitting in an offset account. It's a pretty safe position to be sitting in. Worst yeah, comes to worst, you, you cash. You cash flow your portfolio over five to six years. To shit turns to doesn't doesn't turn out the way you want it. But look, that's the thing. It's not it's not for everyone. It's I, I'm a young guy, and I'm yeah. I I would say I'm pretty you know I enjoy risk. Um, so it, that's why it works for me. And it's the same as Chris Gray, right? Like he's got a business that makes a couple of million dollars a year, um, and he has the ability to to be creative with with finance and be creative with the way he he uses his money. Um, but if I was a mum and dad investor who was probably a little bit risk averse and you know didn't really like the idea of carrying a lot of debt, then I'd probably say it's not it's not the right strategy for you. Yeah, that makes sense. It's good. Yeah. So how, you've mentioned apartments a few times. Um, talk to me about houses versus apartments in your view and in this kind with this kind of strategy. Does it really matter? Like with the population density and more blue chip areas and stuff, does does the whole houses versus apartments argument carry weight does it it does it matter are you better off having would it are you better off having a, a a house in a less desirable street versus an apartment in a more desirable street or anything like that is there any what's the correlation there and what's your view does is do you have any opinion on the houses versus apartments argument? yeah 100 percent. so i think what it comes down to with houses and apartments is not necessarily about the property type it's the location you're buying so if you're buying in an area like Bondi Beach, Bondi is dominated by apartments. It's what the majority of the demographic lives in and it's normal to live in an apartment there. So if the majority of the demographic likes apartments and lives in apartments, then I would say go on and buy an apartment because you're going you're gonna to attract the majority of the demographic. Now, if you're investing in an area like the inner west, for example, let's just say you're in Leichhardt or Balmain or Camperdown, wherever it is, 
they live in terraces, they live in houses, they live in semis. So I probably wouldn't say go and buy an apartment in those areas. I'd be saying go and buy whatever the majority of the demographic lives in. And now for the majority of Australian suburbs, that would be houses, right? Like majority of Australians live in houses because the majority of Australians don't live in places like the eastern suburbs, like the big, big, big world out there or big, big land out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so... So it just comes down to the, the, the whatever the majority of the demographic lives in. Now, in Bondi, do houses outperform apartments? I would say yes, they do. Like if you had a house in Bondi Beach or an apartment, what would perform better? It would be the house. But then you look at the entry costs into a house in Bondi Beach and the median house price is probably three-ish million dollars and the median apartment price is probably $1.2 million. Yeah. So it's like, you're not you're not comparing apples with apples either. It's like houses or apartments. Okay, that's a great that's a great comparison. But how much is a house and how much is an apartment and what's what's you know realistic? Well, okay. So like using the same total asset value, would you be better off holding three apartments or one house? All things being equal, uh, um, I would probably hold. It really depends. Again, like it's a, it depends on how you're holding them. So like if it was an owner occupier and you had three million dollars to spend, there's yeah. the there's the there's the I guess argument where you'd be like, well, I would would you go rent the three million dollar house and go buy three one million dollar apartments and well they're yielding three, three and a half, four percent and the other ones are yielding, you know, one to two percent. It's <laughs> it's like then you're saving on capital gains tax when you buy the house. And it just made it it's just so many different like, you know, at a high level, and this is this is how I see things, like at a high level, every strategy works, right? If you're a basic mm-hmm. mum and dad investor or you know, a normal investor, every strategy is gonna work for you. Like everyone, if you taking action is the biggest thing. I I hundred so like, percent agree. And, and and I like there's so many different, yeah, there's so many different strategies out there, and there's so many different property experts. And to be honest, they they probably all would work if you did the right thing. But mm. it comes down to you as a person, right? Everything looks great from the outside. It's like when you get into the nuts and bolts of it, what's the what's the truth and what's the reality of it? And they're all different. So, like for for me personally, I've got the apartments. I'm going to go spend three or three and a half million dollars at the end of this year on a house on a semi now you know i i also i also push the rent vesting thing is like why would you do that but it's like the reason i'm going to spend that sort of money on a semi is because then i'm going to get a jv partner you know completely renovate put a second level on it sell it off now if i bought that as an investment property as soon as i sell i pay 50 percent of my, of my capital gain and capital gains tax or if i buy as an owner occupier residence sure you're not getting rental income for the 12 or 18 months that you, you're putting a da and doing the work on it you know, the, the the money you save in not paying capital gains tax and uh, being tax effective is 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 a lot more. Yeah. So like that's the thing. One, it's not one strategy as a whole. Like, right, yeah, rent vesting is great, but at, at certain points in your life, and and um, yeah. So I, I'm really fluid with things. I said, yeah, and good. like I think another thing is like never buy off the plan, right? Never buy off the plan. Never buy off the plan. You hear it all the time. I bought off the plan in the middle of COVID. And it's like, would I advise? Yeah, it's like, would I advise my clients to buy off the plan? Probably not. But the reason I bought off the plan is because I seen it as an opportunity. You know, I knew the development very well. I actually knew the builder very well. It was a boutique block of apartments in in Adamstown in Newcastle. Um, and when COVID hit, developers were scared, right? Especially for developments that haven't got out of the ground yet. And all these people have paid the deposits. And if they don't sell their pre-sales, they have to refund all the deposits. Like that's a pretty big deal. So they were doing a lot of, you know, I would say pretty big incentives to get people through the door. Mm-hmm. Now, this was a huge risk because no one knew what was going to happen. But you know, I I negotiated a deal with a developer 
where I had to put $5,000 cash down and then nothing until settlement. And then the only thing you pay between buying and settling is your stamp duty, but you can defer stamp duty and just pay interest on the outstanding money, which is so minimal. So I said, okay, $5,000 cash down, nothing until settlement. Settlement's twenty end of 2022, start of 2023. My worst case scenario out of that is that the property doesn't grow and let's just say it falls 10%. I've got to come up with the cash for a 10% deposit and then the extra 10% and then settle on the property. So yeah, look, bad, could be. Yeah, it could be, but like you got to understand very, that you got to measure the risk, right? Yeah, very unlikely it's going to happen, right? Like the biggest property falls in all of Australia have been less than that. And then yep. my upside was, okay, so this, this exact apartment that I bought in the block had actually sold before, but the, the D, they had to rework the DA and people had chance to rescind on contracts. And this department was one of the owners that rescind. So it sold for $680,000 prior to this happening. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then it went back to the developer. I think it was up to 630 normal times. Then COVID hit and I said, well, okay, I'll give you 589 for the property. Then I'll give you a $5,000 deposit. And I won't pay anything for settlement. And what, what's my upside risk? So my upside risk, would, uh, my upside gain will be $5,000 cash down. The property's gone up by, say, 10 or 15% by the time it settles. Mm. I don't settle on the property. I then sell it, come out with 100, 150 grand, pay my capital, uh, pay my stamp duty, and I bought it as an owner-occupier residence as well, so I don't back up with gains tax. Um, and I walk away with turning my five into 100. Nice. It's not bad either. So it's like, and, and, and like, but th- that's the thing. Everyone harps on about n- never buy, and I'm one of those people, never buy off the plan, never buy yep. off the plan, never buy off the plan. But it's like it, it's all about it, whether you can understand down. it, right? It's all about whether you can understand exactly. it. So, and 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 you, t- you you said something a minute ago, and I wholeheartedly agree. It's like all of these different strategies work in you know for someone in the right circumstance, and if you can understand it properly, right? So, I've done courses on doing property options, and you know, and I've seen people that you know their whole their whole shtick is just do flips, just flip everything, and and like there's all these kind of things which will work for some people and not work for others, and it's really about trying to understand the mechanics around it, and I. Look, part of the reason I wanted to have this discussion is because there's a lot of stuff that I don't understand around, you know, around the way that you've been going about doing things. Which is why I was like, you know what? It'd be really interesting to kind of get that perspective because I think the more that we can understand all of it, right, the better off that we're, we're all going to be. And it'll give you more fluidity and more options and, and all of that kind of stuff moving forward. At the end of the day, we're all, trying to, we're all trying to live a more prosperous, more abundant and more affluent and more successful and more happy and more fulfilled life. And the more ways that we can think about achieving that goal, the better. That's what I think. Now, hundred percent. I'm interested to know what do you think the biggest what, what what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen people make since you started? Or I can rephrase this and say, what's the biggest mistake you've made or the biggest failure you've made, the biggest biggest learning lessons you've had? Um, look, I think for me personally, it's been a pretty good run so far. Right, <laughs> we've bought in a marketplace over the last. So I started investing, I think, in 2014, 2015. Um, and look, it hasn't it hasn't been that bad. You know, we're sure we had a bit of COVID. We had a little bit of Royal Commission yep. in there, a bit of an election, but nothing like major has happened. So we've had a pretty good upswing. And now I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm the panacea to property investing. I've made a lot of money, but it's also been a lot of great circumstance that's actually you know pushed that along as well. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing is is people trying to get rich overnight it doesn't happen. Like, yeah. Doesn't just does not happen. Like you could even now withholding just under five million bucks. I'm not rich at all. I'm far from it. Like I've got a lot of debt too. 
Yeah. You know, but I know the I know holding those properties for the next 10, 15, 20 years, I'll be a wealthy person if I don't do anything else for the rest of my life. If I just maintain the debt levels I have right now, make sure I pay my mortgages and I know it, it's going to work extremely well. Um, but, you know, you, the, I think the thing people get wrong is like instead of well, – I, I, the, way, the way I see it is like property, property is a great way to generate wealth and to store wealth but it's not going to make you rich. Like just buying property and having a you know, full-time job, you're never going to be wealthy. Like you may, really? you may retire. I, I mean, like our definition of wealthy might be different. Uh, but <laughs> Okay, yeah, we're going, yeah. You know what? Like I, I do live in the eastern suburbs. So like my, general, my definition of wealth is probably different to a lot of other people. Like, and I'm, I never grew up in the eastern suburbs either, but what I see as wealth now is very different to what I grew up seeing wealth. But... You know, from what I've learned from all the people I hang around and there's people worth hundreds of millions of dollars is property is a great way to store wealth. It's, uh, there's a lot better ways to make money. So like business is the biggest generator of wealth. That, that's mm-hmm. fact. And, you know, like you, I'm, sh- I'm sure like everyone's like, you see all these posts all the time, 80% of millionaires do so by fucking buying property and all the rest of it. Sure they do, but those 80, 80, 80% of millionaires, you know, weren't earning Sixty to eighty thousand dollars a year for their whole life. Like you look at their background, and it's like they had a business that generated really strong cash flow that then allowed them to go borrow money yeah. and do different things with property. And that property then was the store of wealth, and that accumulated over time to make them wealthy. But the thing that got them there and made them able to do that was cash flow through a business or through a high-paying salary or whatever it may be. Like that's what I was talking about before. And you only see the top, like you see the little bit of the story. You know, it's like oh properties this and properties that and i can think of a lot of people who i know their backstory and it's like yeah sure they push property but i know the reason that they bought 50 or 100 or whatever properties they bought was not because they bought one property and that property then made them enough money to buy number two and three and four and all the rest of it it was the business behind the scenes that was generating all this income which then allowed them to go and do all of that stuff and then they sell that pipe dream to mum and dad investors and there's nothing wrong with that at all because buying one property is, is better than buying no property through your life 110 percent. but i think what what i i don't like is that people sell this pipe dream of you're going to be wealthy if you do this because i did it and it's like no no no, no. the reason you are wealthy and the reason you've got the portfolio is not because you bought one that led to two that led to three that led to 50 it's because you were doing that while making all this money in the background with your business yeah, and that's just and like I, I know that now because I I'm around it every day. Like I see it all the time, um, and it's like any business, you know, everything's it's like sales at the end of the day. <laughs> but yeah. I think like there's just so much fluff out there in the industry, and people get so caught up in it because they they want to be wealthy and they want to do all this stuff, um, and that's why people jump from like let's do flips and oh let's go into development and the oh, law let's go into you know being a passive investor and all the rest of it, and they'll just think like. The bigger, I just keep it plain and simple. Like, buy good quality property in good quality locations. Like, you're always going to have tenant tenants, and you, you, there's probably twenty or thirty years of past growth. That it's a pretty good indicator of what's going to happen in the future, and that's it. My income is generated through my business, which then is going to allow me to buy more property. Okay, so how do you what what's what are you aiming for? Like, you're you're pretty young now, but let's say you you go thirty years down the line when you're a bit older. Like, how are you going to define success? How are you, how are you going to know if you've won the game of life, or or you you know how, how are you going to define that for yourself? So I think uh, I would say 
I would look at you as successful right now and, and me as successful. And it's not necessarily by how much money we have. It's by doing what I want to do on a, on a daily basis. I agree with that, yeah. You know, like it's what it's 8.30. Oh, it's quarter to nine on a Monday morning right now and I'm talking about property, which in essence is generating me money because it's, <laughs> I've got a business. Do, and I love it. Like that's yeah. successful. Now, do I compare myself to other people sometimes? Sure, I'm a human being. You know, you look at other people like, fuck, you know, that guy's got a sick business, got a sick car and all the rest of it. That's natural, right? And it's so hard to avoid that. And you try right, the so comparison, The comparison it. game's brutal though, isn't it? It's the one thing that can completely ruin you, I think. And it doesn't matter at what level you're at there. It's always going to happen. It's yeah. always, there's always someone with a bigger boat, a bigger car, uh, you know, all the rest of it. Um, so, I, like, my... I used to say I used to want to have 10 million property. That was my goal. Was like have mm-hmm. a $10 million portfolio and um, that that's my end goal. That's probably changed a little bit now. And that's only that's only changed over the last, I would say, six to 12 months since I've, you know, been um, exposed to a lot more wealth and a lot more opportunity and my mindset has grown. And, you know, I have a, a mentor who's all about the infinite game and, you know, just keep moving forward, keep moving forward. So there really is no end goal. Like I think my goal for life is just to be able to do whatever I want, when I want. And I'm not at that stage right now for sure. But like that, when I reach that point where it's like, I don't necessarily have to deal with that client or I don't have to go to this thing. Like I don't, you do what you want to do because you want to do it, not because you have to do it. And some people say, I do what I want to do when I want to do it and all the rest of it. But in reality, they do a lot of this stuff because they have to do it because they need yeah, money. Because if they, cause if they don't, doing. other stuff, yeah, other stuff wouldn't work. And, you know, it's yeah. all, it's all, like, there's all a lot good of people that say that. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, look, I'm, I'm in a position where I do what I want when I want with who I want within the context of keeping my business running and keeping our, <laughs> exactly. our, our team employed and making sure that I'm paying the bills and, you know, like all of that kind of stuff. I certainly, um, you know, I certainly couldn't just, you know, disappear into the depths of Africa for the, for the next nine months without something going wrong. So, um, and I'm the same, I'm the same. And I, but I want to get to that point, you know, like yeah. I want to get to that point where you can, like you can, Literally, you know, you, there's some guy you don't want to work with. You say, I don't need your money. I don't need to work with you. I don't need to put up with your shit. I'm not working with you. And it was funny. Last night, I've got the Daily Greatness Journal. Have yeah. you seen that before? No, I haven't seen the Daily Greatness Journal. Really good. So I, I got put onto it by someone. So it's, it's every morning you write all your stuff down and every afternoon you write your stuff down and what you've done for the day. And all that. there's all these really, really cool questions that get your brain thinking. But And then at the start of the book, there's like my mission statement, my why statement, all of these things. And I never did that when I first got the journal. I just went straight into doing it. So last night I was sitting there. I had like an hour before I went to sleep. So I was like, I'm going to do these daily. I'm going to do the, all these things. So sweet. So my my mission statement was like what do i want to achieve in life so you know i won't bore people with it but one of it was to do one of them was to do with my my mum and dad was to give them an incredible retirement and and you know for them to want for nothing and have a life that they never thought was possible one of them was to do with my brother and giving him an incredible life but the one that i think is relevant is like to redefine what success looks like for the majority of people now what i don't what i don't like about successful people is that there's a lot of ego involved. Yep. There's a lot of that, that's, that this is what success looks like. You should drive a fancy car. You should wear a nice suit. You should stay in the best. Like you shouldn't swear. You shouldn't be a bogan. That's not success. Success is prim and proper. Now, I want to fully redefine that. And, and when you have wealth and when you have money, 
as good or as bad as it is, it brings power and it brings a level of respect when you walk into a room because people go, oh, that's that guy. Whether that's good or bad, that's just reality of life. So when you're at a level where you're generally above most people in the success realm, people don't tell you what to do. People, let's just hypothetically say, someone, Harry Triggerboff, for example, walks into a room and I walk into a room. I don't tell Harry Triggerboff what to do with property. Yeah. <laughs> like that's just reality, right? So I think when you can get, and the Atlassian guys I love for this, when you can get to a level where it's like, I don't need to listen to anyone. I define my own success. I define what it looks like. You can do like, it, it, people are inspired by that. And you look at the Atlassian guys, they walk, they're worth $14 billion. They walk around with thongs on. They've got long hair. They've got beards. Like, God, they look that's homeless. not what a $14 they, they look, billion dollar person generally I know. The, 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 well, the wealthier they get, like. the, the wealthier they get, the more homeless they look. It's hilarious. <laughs> and I love that. Look, that's yeah, not same. my look, of course. But like the, the reason they do that is because like what you can't tell me that I'm doing something wrong because I'm here and you're there. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Living and that's, life, I, that's living life I want. And then, yeah. yeah. And then you can, you know, people are inspired by that because they go, well, okay, you know, I'm not the best looking. I don't have the best vocab. I didn't grow up in you know that bad, a private school. No, but I'm saying like for people, you know, like, and then, you know, I didn't go to a private school. I don't like, but that doesn't matter because yeah. if this person's done it and this is what they look like, then you can do it. And that's what I, that, that, that's my really big thing. Yeah, awesome. I, I love that, man. And I'm interested to know, like, what's you've obviously done a fair bit of like development, like emotional development and all of that kind of stuff over the last few years since you were, you know, twice expelled and, you know, went off to work in the mines and do all that kind of stuff. So I'm, 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 inter- <laughs> I'm interested to know, like, what's the, what's, what's the, what new belief or behavior or habit have you picked up over the last five years that's been most impactful for you? Um, the most recent one, which you'll resonate with, is sobriety. How's that going? So good, bro. It's so unreal, good. isn't it? It's like putting life on. Yeah. It's like turning up the volume. It's like putting it all on supercharge. Anyway, it's tell really me about cool. it. How's it all going, um, mate? Awesome. Look, do I still have cravings to to drink? Not to drink, but what I do have cravings for occasionally is what drinking and all the rest of it generally brings. Right? You know, like oh, on Saturday night, I was out with some friends and. In my head, I'm creating this story of like, oh my gosh, they're going to have so much fun. And like in yeah. your head, you're like, oh, I can, I know what they're going to do when they leave here. And you're like, oh, that'd be so awesome to do that. But like, that's, you create a story in your head that's actually not true because you've been there so many times and you know that it's so much better in your head than what it actually ends up being in real life. Yep. Um, so, you know, sobriety is that. And mate, it's awesome. Like, never been so productive. I've never been so fit. Mm. Um, I've never had so much clarity. Um, and I'm a leader now, you know, I've got a team of 11. So what I learned last year is that was growing. It's like, you, if you're the leader and you're hung over and you're not your best and you don't take the calls and, you know, all the rest of it, and your team looks at you and, and if you can do it, then they can do it as well. Like they can not come to work and they can be hung over and not perform their best. So that's something I've seen massive impact on is like, I'm, I'm at work in the office at seven every morning, at 7.30 every morning. I'm there until eight at night constantly working i'm productive so it's like they feel like they have to do that as well because if they yeah. don't i can get up them <laughs> yeah yeah totally um so that's like that part and then um i think I man constant improvement right i think that's the biggest thing how much i've grown since a 15 year old kid getting expelled from school to where i am right now is is huge but i'm still so little and, and so early in the journey that 
it's just like there's just so much so much exponential growth you know and to think like you look back it's been a seven year journey or thereabouts eight year journey so far mm-hmm. i'm going to live another 10 of those you know so it's like how 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 far can it go and how how much better can you get and as long as you're in like as long as you're getting better every single day you're doing something better and not better for the perception of other people better for yourself no, no, but and co- co- constant improvement yeah, and everyone knows when they're performing to their best and when they're not performing to their best, regardless if they show people or not. Like, you know, where, I think it's like self-image, right? It's the way you view yourself. And at the moment, I view myself so good because I'm not doing anything I regret. I'm not doing anything that makes me upset. Like, the, the things I get the shits about now is like not getting up. If I don't get up at 10 to 5 and go to the gym, I'm like, what are you doing, piece of shit, you know? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That stuff annoys me instead of it like, you know, being hungover and not doing any work or – Know, missing a meeting or whatever it is like all the stuff that comes with boozing yeah i think it's awesome man and that was an inspiration from you it was an inspiration from jeff jowett i think so pretty awesome. stoked awesome man i'm so ha- i'm so happy to hear that that's great that's awesome man i really enjoyed the chat today thanks for thanks for uh coming on and for for allowing me to pressure test some of the some of these ideas around <laughs> <laughs> around, around around uh you know th- this different type of investing because i think i think definitely think there's merit there you know there's there's obviously if you can understand it you can obviously the more you can understand it the more you can leverage it for your own potential and all of that kind of stuff and 100 percent. yeah yeah I, I really appreciated the insights the the chat and all of that kind of stuff is there anything else you want to say to anyone before before we wrap it up where can people find you right. if they want to if they want to go and buy you know, an apartment 200 meters from the beach in Bondi. Who should they speak to? Should speak to me. That's who they should speak to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mate, just look. You just look for the guy in the pink suit all over the social. That is got look, the pink suit on. Look like, for the flamingo. My, that's right. And I'm, my apologies about the noise. I think <laughs> you can hear people mowing their lawns in the background. There's buses driving past. I didn't it's go. Okay, to the we can hear the morning. birds. It sounds. We can hear the birds. It just sounds. It sounds very. It sounds like you're out in the forest. I haven't heard any lawnmowers so far, so it's okay. That's good. Well, yeah, I apologize for that. And I was late for the podcast as well because I was getting waxed for my hair. So I look good for everyone. Awesome. Well, mate, I'll chuck a little link to um, to Henderson Advocacy, Advocacy in the show notes as well. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks for being awesome and um, keep up the good work. And I'll be, mate, I'll be, I'll be chatting to you in due course about, uh, about trying to lock something down local when I'm ready as well. So I look forward to that as well.